the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm fortunate enough to have Paul Shawcock all the way from the UK with me. Now, Paul runs his own advisory and education business called Opram. Now, for over 10 years, he's played a prominent role in the development of national and international standards for the management of information. This is namely in the forms of UK 1192 series and the ISO 19650 series. So who better to explain the benefits adopting ISO 19650 series within your organisation and on all of your projects? But before I talk to Paul, I need to talk to you about our exclusive podcast sponsor, NBS. So NBS, through their key product, NBS Chorus is revolutionising construction specification through cloud-based collaboration. NBS Chorus integrates seamlessly with your BIM in ArchiCAD and Revit. Now this increases productivity and reduces risk of conflict information in your deliverables. Now to learn more about NBS, head over to their website, the www.thenbs.com.au. Now, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Paul. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you're a pretty special person and, you know, it's not very often. Well, actually, all of my podcasts, I think everyone's superstars. But firstly, Paul, for those who are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a military engineer by background. Um, So back in the day, you had military engineering and civilian engineering and that was shot down to civil. So it's very aligned with being a a civil engineer. But uh, So I was in the Royal Engineers uh, for just under 10 years. And, you know, looking back, it's still probably the most collaborative environment I've worked in, uh, in terms of teams working together uh, to, to achieve a goal. And it was only when I come out that I discovered things like contracts and profit and poor leadership, you know, that sort of breaks all that down. And it's not really the right environment for, for teams to work collaboratively. And I guess that's sort of uh, been a big part of the work that I've done. Uh, over the past sort of 20 years since coming out uh, in terms of trying to, to to establish better, more more effective teams. And then from leaving the, the military, I had a few various roles, all which really sort of uh, were geared towards uh, helping organisations and projects to improve the way in which they uh, procure, uh, produce, uh, manage and, and use uh, information about, about the built environment. I guess one of the key roles was uh, in 2007, I joined uh, London Underground. And at that time, there was the, the Crossrail project, um, which is at the time one of the, one of the largest projects uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, who London Underground were going to be the ultimate owner from. And so Crossrail were asking London Underground quite simple questions around you know, what information do you need? Um, when do you need it? How would you like us to provide you that information and so on? And none of which we had uh, that many answers to. Um, so I guess my role there was to, as working on the client side was to try and put in place uh, a lot of the, the sort of or answers to the questions in terms of the information that was going to be needed, not just for the delivery of, of Crossrail and, and the other major projects, but uh, in the operational 
uh, life, you know, given that uh, some of London Underground's assets were already 150 years old. And it was around that time that the UK government uh, was starting to think seriously about um, the construction industry um, and how to uh, deliver more for less. And uh, a big part of that was the government construction strategy, uh, which was published in 2011. Uh, so I was fortunate to be part of a team who assisted um, in sort of a lot of the, the, the pre-work or the build-up uh, to that strategy. Um, and then after that was published, we had obviously the, the, the BIM Level 2 uh, strategic objective, which was all great, but obviously it wasn't very much, was, wasn't, wasn't very defined uh, at that point. Um, so we then set about uh, developing what became the UK 1192 series. Um, and I was asked to, to co-author uh, part two, which looked at the delivery phase and set out really the strategic framework uh, for BIM Level 2 in the UK. So with all that in mind, uh, I started to sort of uh, get really uh, into uh, the, the process side and the people side. Um, and so in 2012, I set up my own uh, company, Opram, and really to sort of help uh, to provide you know, both advisory and uh, educational services to organizations wanting to, to align with those industry standards, uh, and namely the, the UK 1192 series. And then probably a bit sooner than, than we expected uh, in 2014, I was then asked uh, to elevate the UK 1192 series to ISO and be part of the team uh, to develop ISO 19650. So specifically, I'm the, the author of uh, ISO 19650 part two and the uh, co-author of the transition guidance uh, from, 11, uh, from 1192 to 19650. Um, so, but a lot of that in terms of, you know, the, the government uh, support and standards development is, is, is a bit of a hobby. You know, I'm still very much a, a practitioner working on, uh, at the moment, we're working on a, a double Metrolink over in Ireland, uh, which is Ireland's largest uh, infrastructure project and hopefully will become a, a key exemplar of, of, of how to implement at the ISO 19650 series. And aside from that, I still sort of uh, continue to support government. So played a small part in uh, ABAB, the Australian BIM Advisory Board, um, over the years. Um, I'm currently working for the Centre for Digital Built Britain uh, in advising uh, governments, particularly uh, the US. So we've been working closely with our counterparts in the US probably now 18 months. And you may have seen things like the, uh, the, uh, the Memorandum of Understanding with the UK. Um, so yeah, still very much a, a practitioner. Now I can understand how you've been an author of those standards. So military training and civil engineering, two very rigid systems and process-based uh, roles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, it's, um, I think, it, you know, I, I, learnt, well, I, I learnt on the drawing board. So I was there for the transition from the drawing board uh, to the computer. And, uh, and so my main focus, if you're talking about the people process and technologies, is very much the people side of things. and And... You know, now that was sort of, again, uh, a, a major transition. You know, a lot of the time, we, we, we all know that, you know, people are, are the key to this and how can we actually start to build uh, effective teams, uh, which for me ultimately is what the process is there, is there to support. It just happens to be enabled uh, by technology. And I think 
you know, we've got, uh, as Opram, we've got a bit of a unique position where we don't actually do technology, which is a bit unusual for a company that uh, specializes in uh, the management of information. But, you know, I think for all the advancements and innovations and tools, you know, all we've really done is uh, being able to produce poor quality information faster than we could with the previous tool, you know, because we're, we're not really given the attention or, or investment in, in the individuals in terms of the skills and not only the technical skills, but also the, the soft skills about communication and um, leadership and, and collaboration. So, yeah, that's that's something I've definitely brought from, uh, I think, from the military, or at least I try to. Now, in your introduction about yourself, you, you touched on Oprem and how your role or the services that Oprem provide are centred around consultancy and training. Do you want to delve into a little bit more detail uh, so the guests understand the services that Oprem actually provides, so if they're interested in reaching out to you? Yeah, I mean, when, when we set up, I guess it was predominantly focused on the advisory side of things. So what we wanted to do was to help organizations and major projects to, to align their business processes with the latest industry standards and best practice. At that time, it was around the UK 1192, more so now, uh, ISO 19650. But a big part of that, uh, it was clear that, you know, we, it was around education and quite often re-education of the people within the organizations or the projects. So there's two sides to the, to the business in terms of the advisory uh, and an education. Uh, and that's where Opram Academy fits in. Um, so the idea there is around helping organizations to build capability and capacity that they need to manage information effectively. Although we're based in the UK, uh, the vast majority of our customers are outside uh, of the UK. And yeah, so in terms of Australia, uh, we work with Mark McDonald's um, to help develop uh, transport for New South Wales, BIM roadmap. Uh, and then we were directly appointed to help establish what is now the digital engineering framework. Uh, and we've also worked with uh, Oricon uh, quite quite a lot over the years. We've, we've helped shape their sort of strategy and uh, played a small part in, in them getting certified as well or being one of the first uh, engineering consultancies to be be certified against the ISO 19650 series. And uh, just before the pandemic, we were working closely with Lendlease as well over in Australia. Uh, and on the educational point of view, I say Oricon have been a, 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 a big client of ours uh, over the couple of years last couple of years and we've recently just done a, a one of our boot camps um with the oricon team as well um which involved some early mornings uh, on my part but which is all good um but we've also got the likes of ghd uh 12d you've got um and uh across the new zealand uh kiwi rail are, are starting to ramp up as well in terms of um their use of opera academy so yeah we've got quite a good uh um, really proud of our, our sort of customer base uh, globally. We've now sold into over um, 40 countries, uh, particularly with, with, with Opera Academy. So, yeah, it's all going pretty well at the moment. Now, moving on to the reason why I wanted to talk to you specifically today, the knowledge level of my listeners on the history of ISO 19650 would vary from no experience whatsoever to a reasonably good, strong knowledge and understanding of how that's all, how the, the roadmap essentially of how it all occurred. Would you be able to provide like a short history lesson uh, for our listeners on the history of ISO 19650? So 
touching on its beginnings as the UK standard where you started with it and I guess the key reasons why the standards were created in the first place. Yeah, I think there is this perception that, you know, the, the standards have been written by people in a, in, a, in a dark room somewhere and quite often you hear, you know, you know they've obviously never worked on a project type sort of thing, you know, and it's uh, it's quite an academic process when actually it's, it's you know, it couldn't be further further from the truth. Um, I think, you know, going back to what, what occurred before that the, the standards were developed, um, you know, globally, but specifically in the UK, there was a lot of research around the sort of the failings of the construction industry. Um, so, you know, we had reports like the, the Latham and the Egan report, and, you know, we were very good at, you know, looking at um, what was going wrong uh, in terms of the, the, the industry, in terms of its low productivity. And, you know, out of, out of all those reports, there was always these key recommendations. Um, and when you look at the root cause of a lot of these issues, poor quality information, poor communication, were all root causes of a lot of the issues. And so that's really the starting point for the standards. And you can still see within the clauses and the requirements within the standards that a link between what, what's being required within the standard and the recommendations from a lot of these this research. And that was so, in terms of the development, um, again, bringing into a, a strong leadership, uh, Sir John Egan uh, on Heathrow uh, Terminal 5 project, you know, wanted to develop this um, collaborative approach to the production of information. And so he put a team together uh, led by Mervyn Richards uh, to develop uh, a process that would support that. So that was developed and implemented on Heathrow, again, another major infrastructure project. Um, it was then tested through the Avanti Research Project uh, on a wide variety of different projects, and all of which was independently verified to demonstrate that actually, um, if you applied this process, you could um, reduce uh, the outturn cost um, of projects on average by 20%. And that's just by removing those wasteful activities uh, in terms of, you know, the overproduction, overprocessing, um, rework and, and so on. And so that then um, became uh, what we know as BS 1192, and that was published in 2007. So there's, there's already, you know, 10 plus years of, of research, uh, development and testing that went into publishing BS 1192. Um, which was entitled, oddly enough, the, the Collaborative Production of Information. And that was really the standard, you know, at that point, you, given the, the success of, the, um, of, the, of the, the, the testing, that all projects would then want to, uh, would, would want to adopt that. But for whatever reason, um, that wasn't the case. And so in 2010, Paul Morell was appointed as the, the UK's chief government construction advisor um, and then really just frustrated um, in the sense that you know we, we we knew how to do it but just nobody was was doing it um, so he sort of asked this question you know what would happen if we actually uh, mandated the use of this process uh, on all publicly funded projects and that's really where this this whole sort of strategy around BIM level two came and the, the term BIM Level 2, for those of you who aren't aware, came from this sort of wedge diagram, which sort of suggested how far we could get uh, within the term of a parliament. Um, 
But again, as I mentioned before, that was BIM level two wasn't defined. So then we then went on to uh, define the, the information manager process, um, both during the delivery phase, which became, I was part 1192 part two, and also the operational phase in terms of part three. Um, so what you had in BS1192 and then PAS1192 part two and three um, was the, the, the end-to-end information management process throughout the asset lifecycle, both for the management of information in terms of part two and three and the production of information in BS1192. And all of that in terms of that development was was based around um, you know large... Um, major infrastructure projects, uh, the likes of Crossrail and so on, but they were also applied on, um, you know, schools, uh, hospitals, uh, prisons, and so on. So a wide variety of, of asset types, and they developed in a way that were agnostic to um, any commercial or procurement route, uh, agnostic to any uh, technology, um, and also agnostic to any particular type of asset which when developing the standards is actually quite a bit of a challenge. Um, and I think where is where a lot of the frustration comes from because they're not as specific. You know, if you're building a particular type of asset on a particular type of contract, I think people get frustrated because all the answers aren't in the standards. So that's, and then 1192 then uh, increased in terms of part four, looking at the information exchange and the, um, the, 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 the structure of, of data to hand over to the to the assets uh, asset owners, which again was another big uh, issue that came from the research. Um, part five around adopting a security-minded approach, uh, again to address the you know the the, um, the 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 security of information relating to sensitive assets, which again was was another biggest challenge that we had in the industry. And then part six, um, probably one of the biggest challenges around health and safety, and how we can uh, incorporate. Um, health and safety information within the information model rather than um, stuck away in, in an archive box somewhere so it's readily, readily available. But all of these standards are developed by people and, and organizations um, who have got a vast amount of experience of implementing that within industry and the, the collaboration behind the working groups that form these standards and the professional bodies that they represent means that there's a wealth of knowledge, you know, the, the, the people who write it are, are probably, you know, just to um, play a small part in the development of the standards. Um, they then go out for public consultation. And so, you know, the, that which take days, literally days to go through hundreds of comments around the standards. And then, so that's in terms of the UK perspective. And I think what happened is that actually there was a lot of uh, international clients who thought, well, you know, if that's um, if, if all these are, are uh, is the way to do it, and we want a bit of that um, uh, cost reduction as well, and the value that they're going to bring. Um, so you had organisations, Middle East and Australia, like the likes of Transport for New South Wales, mandating these standards, and that really then became this this international pull from the international supply chain, saying, "Well, you know, hang on, that's not really fair if we're, you know." working on a, on a project in Australia and we've now got to align with the UK standards. Um, so there's this call for the UK 1192 series to be elevated to international level. And again, that process, you know, just parts two, parts one and two, which were the first to be published, 
that took us four and a half years to develop. And that namely was around, um, you know, I can remember when we started thinking, you know, yeah, this one, this only takes six months, um, <laughs> you know, just to uh, strip out all the UK bits. And, you know, we had a reasonable draft after six months, to be honest, but to get that consensus and international agreement took us four and a half years. There was, um, you know, a large amount of involvement from, you know, countries and working groups all around the world in terms of reviewing it and getting that. Um, so, you know, the ISO 19650 series, although their origins are from the UK 1102 series, they're very much an international set of standards. You know, even Australia had a working group that were actively involved, you know, in terms of, I'm saying actively involved and I'm talking about, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to attend 10 meetings, uh, review meetings, uh, providing comments and so on. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it is truly an international standard. And I think the other thing with, with that is that it's enabled uh, multinational teams as well to, uh, to have a unified approach. I think one of the other challenges that I heard from a lot of customers and, and colleagues is, you know, where you're working multinational, you've got teams who are all working in different, different ways, mainly because of the, the, the region where that asset is. So if you're working in, you know, Australia, you'd be working to one way. If you're working in the US or if you're working in Europe, what are an international standards do and having a unified process, it means that, you know, they can have a unified approach regardless of where that asset is. Yeah, so that's quite a powerful thing for multinational organizations to have in the sense that, you know, they can, uh, individuals can work and collaboratively in multinational teams on projects uh, anywhere around in the world. That works really well for multinational companies. Uh, we're coming up very soon on the three-year mark since part one and two of the ISO 19650 series was released. Uh, because you have an international reach through your training, what's your general perception on how it's been received by the international community as a standard, considering it took four and a half years to come to some sort of agreement? I think, yeah, look, let's be honest, I think the, um, the the adoption hasn't been as as quick as, you know, maybe we, we would all like. Yep, um, I still think there's a lot of, uh, still a lot of frustration out there. Um, you've got, you know, companies who, um, sort of the, the, the early adopters who have really gone in. Uh, and I think those organisations are the one who see the, the, the value um within their own organization, regardless of whether clients are asking for it or not. Um, you know, they can see the value in having a managed approach to the way in which they manage and produce uh, information. Um, and then you still got these, the companies who are sort of sitting on the fence a little bit to say, well, you know, I'll wait until uh, the client is, is, is asking for it. Um, and then you've got obviously people and organizations on the other side who, you know, think this will all just blow over. Um, and we'll we'll just keep on uh, keep on uh, jogging the way that we've always been been doing so. Um, but I think in terms of you know we are st- starting to see um, a, a shift. You know, in terms of obviously from a UK perspective, um, the ISO nineteen six fifty series have replaced the UK eleven ninety two series, and that's now become part of what's known as the UK BIM framework. Um, and so that's. ISO 19650 plus 
uh, a, a, a series of other standards, um, which has now been um, mandated on all uh, publicly funded uh, projects. Uh, again, so this is you know explicitly now um, on um, the UK BIM framework for all publicly funded uh, projects. Um, we've got the over in Europe, um, the an EU uh, BIM task group was set up a number of years ago. Um, and so as the European Union, um, I've also were actively involved in development. Um, and now that all the those standards are being translated into the different um, uh, languages, and a lot of European countries have now got their national annexes sorted, I think we're going to start to see uh, a big uptake across Europe uh, around the, the adoption. Um, we've also got things like the Middle East, so the Road Transport Authority in Dubai spring to mind. Um, they were one of the first uh, organized, uh, asset owners, obviously a large asset owner, um, to um, not only mandate the use of um, what was 1192 and now 19650, but they were also, if I'm not wrong, the first um, asset owning organization to be certified against parts two and three um, in, in the world. So that again shows you their sort of uh, aspirations and, to, and, and leadership uh, within that region. Um, obviously, not forgetting Australia. Um, I think, uh, you know, New South Wales and particularly Transport New South Wales, uh, I think were probably one of the first um, sort of asset owner organisations to um, sit, think seriously uh, about information management and or digital engineering as it's as it's known. Um, and, you know, shortly followed behind by uh, Victoria with things like the VDAS, uh, the Victorian Digital Asset Strategy um, and, and Queensland as well. Uh, I think are probably, in my view, um, probably the three states um, in, in in Australia who are sort of leading that leading that way. But again, appreciate the uh, the frustration in Australia in terms of maybe the speed the speed of that. Um, um, and across over in New Zealand, as a, as I say, Kiwi Rail, I think uh, are, are ones to watch. I think they're they're really getting their house in order. Um, and yeah, I think Kiwi Rail are going to be leading the way uh, from a New Zealand perspective. Um, and yeah, finally, I guess over in the US, as I mentioned before, through the work that we're doing with the Centre for Digital Britain, um, you know, we've, the US have finally uh, agreed to develop a national uh, BIM um, strategy. Um, and so what, and National 19650 plays a big part of that. And so the expectation or the anticipation is that, you know, 19650 will become um, a big part of, of the US construction industry in the next year or two. Now, there are a lot of buzzwords and marketing that gets thrown around by the supply chain. Now, they're trying to promote themselves to try and win work. And the one that my pet peeves, I guess, is consultants promoting digital twins. And you know, half of it's wrongly promoted, and they're incorrect, incorrect in their definition. Uh, but the whole thing is, as well, it's it's this whole issue now with even consultants going in and talking about going in and you know delivering in regards to ISO nine six fifty. And the problem with that, there is a correct order in the in the approach where where people need to to go about in their implementation of this standard. 
when it comes to implementing an ISO 19650 series process, where do you where did you, where would you suggest that people start? Um, yeah, that is a great question. I think um, you know the first thing to to think is that, or to, the first thing to point out is that this is a series. So there are currently um, five parts to the series, four of which have been published. Uh, so parts one, two, three, and five. Uh, part four hopefully will be published uh, next year. Uh, and part six, um, looking at health and safety, um, that is is in development. So that's probably a year or two um, away. Um, so, yeah, and as you say, there is uh, different starting points in terms of, you know, out of those six, where, where do you actually start? Um, and I think, you know, as a, as a good place as any would be part one uh, of of the series, which, and the reason for that is that it looks at the, the concepts and principles um, for the management and production of information throughout the asset life cycle. Um, so it gives you that holistic view and, and looks at, uh, introduces some of the, the key concepts and principles uh, are, are around the, the process. So, you know, part one gives... Um, people a good good ground and a, and a little bit more um, uh, understanding about the, the relationship between um, uh, the, the different activities, you know, why they're there, why the process is even uh, exists, um, the value, the benefit of, of implementation as well. So part one is probably a good place uh, to start as any. Um, I think in terms of the process itself, um, for clients, um, owners, um, asset-owning organizations, whatever you want to call them, um, part three is probably the place um, that they need to be start. I think, um, you know, I've said it a few times, part three is probably the prequel uh, to part two in terms of the series. Um, the history behind that is that we just we just knew more about the delivery phase than the operational phase, so we produced uh, part two of, of 1192 first. Um, and I think that number and stuck um, within the ISO. So yeah, if you're if you're a part of a client organization, um, then you really want to be starting with part three. And the, the reason for that is because it, it sort of, it talks around a lot of the, uh, the, the upstream activities around, you know, defining the requirements for information, both at an organizational, uh, perspective in terms of you know the information that the organization needs to do whatever it needs to do and um, so whether that's you know running a railway um running a hospital um you know a commercial building residential building whatever it might be uh, but also the asset information requirements so the information that they need uh, in order to operate uh, and maintain and, and decommission the assets within their portfolio um, so it's really about sort of, you know, starting um, to look at the information that they need as an organization uh, and talks about developing the asset information model um, based upon the, the assets that they already have. And that can be, you know, a large uh, portfolio uh, or it could just be a piece of land. Um, so, but that really gives the foundation upon which you can then start to um, to go out uh, and procure more data about either existing or, or new assets that are to be that are to be delivered. Um, so, part three uh, specifically for for clients, 
Um, however, if um, you know whether you're a client organization or not, if you're just looking to specifically to deliver a project, um, so you may be a, a, an organization that just wants to, you know, give it a go for one, for one of a better word, then a good, uh, a good starting point would be part two, um, which is obviously very project uh, focused. Um, so it talks specifically around the point at which the, the project is initiated. Um, so, yeah, if you got, if you're at that point, um, then part two would be your, uh, your starting point. Uh, and then that'll then take you through the process in terms of preparing to go out to tender, uh, to procure that information um, through the delivery phase and to make sure that that information is uh, produced effectively and handed back uh, at the end uh, to meet those requirements. Um, and, but, you know, regardless of whether those, if um, you're looking at the operational or delivery start, if any of the assets that you're working with uh, are deemed to be sensitive, um, then part five uh, should also be your go-to standard. Uh, within that, there's a, there's a triage process which which helps organizations and pro uh, projects determine which assets um, are deemed to be sensitive uh, and therefore uh, to work out what additional measures may need to be put into place to ensure uh, the security of the information about those specific assets. Um, so yeah, that's probably where uh, uh, people should go to depending on on the particular scenario that they're facing. I almost need to take that out as a short. I think that was the probably the most informative uh, statement that anyone could ever make about the use of the standards and specifically around the challenges that we I know we face here in Australia and it's probably based upon the fact that most asset owners don't really know what information they need. And the answer being, well, part three is the process of maintaining your asset. So if you walk yourself through the steps of maintaining your asset in that operational phase through that standard, then you'll start to identify and be able to then pick out the pieces of information you need to respond to those challenges that you have uh, rather than being asked the question as part of the part two series and kind of putting shrugging your shoulders and going, oh, I don't really know. I don't know what I need. So refer to part three to gain the answers to then write part two requirements. Perfect. I think I think my world's been solved now, Paul. Now, <laughs> the problem is here in Australia, uh, um, come, it, it could come down to the maturity of the authors of the document and I, that's possibly where I think it comes down to. But there are a significant number of projects and these are even large-scale projects where – Tender documentation include these broad brush statements saying the this appointment shall be delivered in accordance with ISO 19650. Um, and in most circumstances, the, the challenging part is, is that the tender documentation doesn't actually include any information requirements from the appointing party. Now, for those that aren't aware of the standard or haven't read it before, the appointing party is typically the client. Um, in most circumstances, it's the the asset owner or a representative of the asset owner. Um, sometimes it can be <laughs> further down the line, but that's the that's the most um, most circumstances that is the case. For our asset owners, apart from that that sage like advice you just gave in your last statement, what would be the fundamental activities that you'd recommend um, that be undertaken by an appointing party before they even think about going out to tender? And this is going out to tender to 
the consultants at the start of the project, not out to tender to construction. So right at the start, what would be your Reader's Digest version of that? <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, uh, within both parts two and three, there's this, the step one of the process, the assessment and needs step. Um, the, there's, there's quite a few uh, activities um, that need to be undertaken, as you say, before um, they even think about going out to tender. Um, and I think the at this you know the important thing to note there is that you know we recognise that not every asset owning organisation or client or uh, appointing party, which is now the term, are going to have the capability or capacity um, to undertake all of those different activities. Um, so it's made very clear in the standard that um, you know whilst they remain responsible for undertaking those activities, they can actually either employ a third party uh, to come in and support them to undertake those activities, or they can discharge those responsibilities um, to one of the appointed parties uh, to undertake on their behalf. So there's no real, um, you know, or there shouldn't be any real excuse from the clients for not being able to undertake these activities. And, you know, without without, uh, going through each each one of them, I think so. You know, probably some of the key ones is is obviously around um, understanding their requirements for information. Um, and at this stage, um, what they're looking at, they're looking at that at a project level. So the vast majority of, of projects are delivered using some form of um, gate management process, um, whatever that might be. And you know, the way that works is that you know, they, at each gate, um, the, the the project decides whether uh, to proceed to the next st- stage. Um, and that's the ultimate decision. But uh, to make that decision, they need uh, a lot of questions that need to be answered in order to make an informed decision about whether to proceed to the next stage. And so those questions that need to be answered, there, the basis for which they should be defining their project information requirements. Okay. Um, and so they're the ones, so what they're actually going out for to procure is answers. They're going out to procure answers about uh, for these questions so that they can make a decision uh, to proceed. So things like, you know, um, you know how, how much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take to build? Uh, does it meet the, the brief? Does it meet the performance uh, specification of the asset? Um, is it going to meet the business need? So there's all these sort of high-level questions and, and you get more granular as you go along. Um, and so what they're going out is to, is to procure answers to those. Um, in addition to that, they need to, they have a responsibility, uh, almost an obligation to provide uh, the right sort of um, collaborative and commercial environment for teams to work together uh, in order to produce that information and provide them with those answers. Um, so there's a number of activities within there and that's looking around mainly the information standards that they need that information to be produced so that they can uh, use and reuse that information um, uh, during and beyond the, the project uh, any specific uh, production methods and procedures that they want teams to use or to adopt um, again it depends on the maturity of the organization but if there are any specific ones um, then they need to get those documented as well. Um, from a, a collaborative point of view, um, the responsibility, and this is quite contentious, but the responsibility for the provision 
of uh, a centralized and shared repository for all this information, which we know and love as a common data environment, sits with the appointing party or the client. And again, um, they can either provide that uh, themselves or uh, employ uh, a third party to provide it on their behalf. But ultimately, they, the provision of that um, uh, environment, the common data environment of the CDE, um, is sits with the client. Um, and then start to look from the commercial side of things as well in terms of um, what we call the information protocol. Uh, and that really sets up the obligations for all parties, including the client, um, around the production, uh, distribution and, and use of information that is uh, generated uh, as part of that delivery phase. So for me, they're probably some of the key fundamental um, activities that need to be uh, completed before uh, moving forward and to the next step, which is obviously preparing the invitation uh, to tender. And I think the bit, the pitfall that a lot of projects fall into is that they sort of, they want to, you know, the, the point at which they start thinking about all this is the point at which they, they start to put the tender together, uh, at which point, you know, the, 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 the pressure is on uh, to get the invitation to tenders out. Um, and so therefore, you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't got the, the, the capacity or the time uh, to, to, that they need to give to these activities to prepare for that invitation to tender. And it's a sort of, uh, you know, again, quite common uh, in terms of projects where they say, well, you know, we'll just get the first appointment out uh, and we'll do this for the next one. Um, and then, well, maybe not this one, then maybe the one, maybe the one after. Um, but, you know, the reality is every time they go out for an appointment and information is generated without all those activities completed, you know, they're just introducing more and more risk into the project. Because quite often that information that's being produced in those early appointments is then being used by the subsequent appointments um, in terms of coordination and use for, for decisions. So it's quite a, you know, the, the, the risk increases every time you go out for an appointment that don't include all of those requirements, uh, particularly the requirements for information. You might find yourself not getting what you need if you don't ask for it correctly. Yeah, or not asking for anything at all. <laughs> so there's an extensive amount of work that clients need to go to or appointing parties need to go to before they even consider going into tender if they want to adopt the processes of ISO 19650. This is a really long process, and but from my perspective, I look at the ISO 19650.2 process, the delivery of assets, as just a, another project management process. Now... What's covered in ISO 19650.2? And I guess that's the one we're focusing on today because it's one of the – we need this as the first start, starting points of processes that get delivered. So the process within that standard covers over eight separate steps and over 40 different activities that are covered over those uh, eight steps. Now, you and I both know that we can talk for hours and hours and hours if we went into the specific details of each of the activities, which I think we we don't have the time for today. And and secondly, mm -hmm. some people may fall, fall asleep uh, if we tried to do it individually. Could you just give us a brief overview of of those steps and and how and the purpose of each of the steps? So yeah, I guess this is going to be quite difficult without the use of uh, any visual aids. Um, but yeah, I'll certainly give it a go. 
I think the, the thing with the information management process is, is you're absolutely right. It's like any other process. You know, it just it contains a series of interrelated activities that convert inputs to outputs to achieve a intended result. And for the information management process, that intended result is for me is that the right people get the right information at the right time. Okay. Um, and as you say, there are eight steps uh, within that process. Um, each of them needs to be completed before you move on to the next step. Um, so, yeah, so if you visualize uh, eight different steps, um, steps one and eight, uh, so the start and the end of the process, um, they may only need to be undertaken once um, for that particular uh, project, um, whereas steps two to seven uh, will need to be undertaken for each and every appointment on that project. Okay, so we need to draw a distinction between the project and, and the appointments on it. Um, and making you know bearing in mind that appointments and we use the term appointments rather than contracts is because they can also be internal uh and external or a combination of both and um, so if it's external obviously through the use of a contract if it's internal potentially through the use of a work instruction or or some other uh, mechanism um but the process and the activities are exactly the same um so and in terms of um those uh, six steps that need to be undertaken for each appointment, uh, they're broken down into three phases. Okay, so steps two and three form the procurement phase. Um, steps four and five form the planning phase. And steps six and seven form the production phase of that particular appointment. Okay, so we've, again, trying to just break that, that process down into uh, a logical sort of sequence in terms of the procurement, planning, and, and production. Within each step, as you said, there are a number of activities distributed amongst them. So within part two, there are, there are 40. Um, uh, in part three, there, there, there's, there's a few more. But um, generally, the activities are either uh, the responsibility of either the appointing party, so the client, or the appointing parties which are the suppliers um, and the supply chains. So within the standard, you'll notice each clause relates to each uh, an activity um, and it'll be written in the form of the appointing party shall or the lead appointed party shall and so on. But in general, um, the appointing party um, undertakes all the activities within steps one and two. Um, the lead appointed parties undertake the vast majority of activities within steps three, four, and five, um, although some of those activities are shared with the appointed parties or, or assigned to the client. As the producers of information, so the appointed parties, so the, the supply chain, undertake the activities within step six. Um, and then to finish off, it's for the client or the appointing party to complete the process by undertaking the activities within steps seven and eight. All right, so I'll be uh, testing you on that later, Nathan. That's all right. Well, hopefully that made sense. <laughs> now, for people that can't see anything because this is a podcast, you should see Paul's face, facial expressions as he was going through the explanation of that. It was just priceless. Now, 
I feel privileged. I was just making sure I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear a pointing party instead of a pointed party in one instance, but I will, I'll forgive you for that. I I, uh, I recorded a presentation the other day where I actually um, said an, uh, the description of uh, integrated digital delivery as integrated digital design, and I've just thought, oh, you got to make mistakes like that occasionally. But <laughs> Paul, from my perspective. There's, there's not a lot of training options available in the market for people to actually learn about ISO 19650. And, and even today, before we, we began this chat, I was on having a conversation with people about the uptake of ISO 19650 in Australia, specifically around certification and the like, and, and how far away this market is here in Australia about that. And I think it's purely because there's not a lot of people out there providing knowledge and training. Over the last year or two, I'd been contemplating putting together my own training platform and training series uh, for, for the market here in Australia. But, you know, I was introduced to you, you know, and, and, and your program with Operam Academy. And I was able to sit down through the pandemic here in Australia and, and actually complete your online program. And immediately under, undertaking that, I've just gone to myself, there's no point in reinventing the wheel here. Um, I've got to, got to partner with you and, and become an affiliate and help promote it here in Australia rather than trying to reinvent the wheel because it's just, you know, there's some to try and replicate the quality of what you produced is it's, it's a lot of thousands of hours of work. Paul, just so the listeners understand because there's not a lot of, not a lot of training options out there. Can you explain to the listeners specifically the courses that you have as an offering and how it's structured so that, you know, they now have somewhere that they can go and learn about ISO 19650. So early on in terms of Opera, um, we did a lot of uh, instructor-led learning um, because obviously when you're looking to adopt uh, the, the process, the, the process is done or implemented by people. And if you look at the 40 activities within the process, you know, it's, it's, it needs a wide variety of, of knowledge, experience, and, and authority. And, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to find some sort of uh, superhero, you know, even, even you, Nathan, um, you know, <laughs> couldn't really undertake all these 40 activities. And, you know, so the reality is, is that, you know, that each of the activities are going to be undertaken by um, a, a variety of different people. And maybe some people that you don't actually expect, and particularly the ups, upstream activities when you're talking about the requirements owners, um, when you're talking about procurement, legal, uh, commercial people who have to put all those tenders together and the appointments together, and uh, you know, so uh, and so what we need to do as an industry is to is to educate um, the existing professionals um, from across all the different management functions that you find within the organisation. So that includes, you know, things like the project management, asset management, uh, design management, construction management, uh, commercial management. Um, all of these different functions need to um, understand, you know, not only what the process is, but what their role is within that process. Um, what are the activities that become before their bit? Um, what activities come after their bit? And, and so what we started to do was to look at, um, okay, how what's the best way that we can support the individuals uh, within the organizations. And so we came up with a curriculum that was very much based around the key activities within the process, um, rather than just doing a page turn uh, of the standards, which 
you know, I accept not everybody's as, uh, as enthusiastic as, as standards as I am. Um, so it was very much more around activity based in terms of what do I need to do to fulfill my part of the, of this process. Um, and so to start, we developed that curriculum and we started really at, at the beginning and the, the very first course in the curriculum is called BIM, what's it all about? And we put this course together to try and not only sort of talk about the different perspectives of, of BIM and this term BIM that's uh, invaded our sort of uh, our, our terminology and, and, and industry, uh, but also to address some of the preconceptions that people have uh, around the term. Um, and so from there, and using that as a foundation, we introduced um, an overview around the process and then took um, a deeper dive into some of the key activities within it. And, you know, it's been probably you know, a lot more successful than uh, even I anticipated. You know, like, as you say, we, we invested a lot of time and effort uh, in developing this curriculum. And um, as I say, we've sold into over 40 countries. We've uh, and our materials educated over, I think we're on to 12,000 uh, professionals now. And, you know, the, the feedback that we get is um, it's quite overwhelming at times. But, you know, um, what we want to do is to continue that uh, support in terms of developing more and more content around um, some of the newer standards within the series, um, but also maybe looking at some of the regional uh, implementations so working with uh, experts like yourselves um, in, in other regions to develop some more regional-based um, uh, content. So, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about, about the future around Upper Academy particularly. No, I think it's definitely well worth it and, and I'm very happy to be part of that. Uh, one of 12,000. I see it feels so insignificant now. But, Paul, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. And I have one final question one that I asked all of my guests, and, and this series has actually been really exciting. I think I found the answers from my guests to be very, very exciting. So I'm actually really looking forward to your response to this. What does BIM mean to you? Oh, really? Um, <laughs> <coughs> um, oh, well, I don't think my response is probably going to be as exciting, if I'm being honest. So I guess the short version is the... Uh, BIM for me is the collaborative production of information. Okay. And what I mean by that is going back to BS 1192, which defined um, the, the process for individuals and teams to, to work collaboratively to produce information, to coordinate uh, information. For me, that is, that is building information modeling. And the, the process is defined, the information management process defined in parts two and three set out the, the, the manager of information to enable the collaborative production of information, AKA BIM. All right, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory to this as well as, <laughs> so when the first initial drafts of Puzzle 1192 part two, it didn't contain the word BIM once, okay? And the client at the time was the, was the UK government who had just gone out and banged this big BIM drum and BIM level two and the framework document didn't have the word BIM in it. So the can we um, the compromise was that we the title of part puzzle of night two part two is uh, was around the manager of information when using BIM. Okay, so if you want to use BIM, this is how you manage information, and that has continued into the ISO thankfully. So we've got 
the title around there about the management information during the delivery phase when using BIM and the operational phase when using BIM. And so, you know, when you're talking about uh, individuals and teams working together, again, enabled by a lot of the amazing technology and innovation that we're seeing uh, within the industry, um, but, but it's very much about people and people working together collaboratively to produce that information. So for me, that is what BIM means to me. Isn't it sad that politicians control the way that we work? (laughs) I actually prefer the old naming. It would have been lovely to have seen the original naming, you know, stick and we would lose, you know, this this whole model-based concept and it would have just been about, well, what information do we need? But full of wisdom as usual, Paul. But thanks very much (laughs) for your time, mate. Uh, Nathan, my pleasure. Now, for more information on Paul and ISO 19650, please head over to the podcast section of the SKUD website for further reading. Uh, And if you're interested in training, you can jump onto the training part of my website as well. But I look forward to sharing your next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. Digital transition.